It is episode 100, and I promised you guys a very, very big guest. Well, they don't get much bigger than this guy. He is a 16-time Bassmaster winner, has an unbelievable 123 Bassmaster top 10s. He is a record 32-time Bassmaster Classic qualifier, a former Bassmaster Angler of the Year. He is the four-time Bassmaster Classic champion from Ava, Missouri. The legendary Mr. Rick Clun joins me. On I'm Bob Cobb for the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Welcome one, welcome all friends, family, freeloaders, fishing freaks. By now you know the drill. You're all welcome here at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. And uh, happy hump day. Want to welcome in all our humpers that join week after week. And all of you, whether this is your first time watching, your 50th time watching, or your 100th time watching, thank you all. Um, this has become one of the most rewarding, humbling, and therapeutic parts of my week, talking to you guys. And I thank you all for making this show what it is. It's hard to believe that it's already the 100th episode. It kind of feels like we're just getting started. Um, but it's a milestone and I thank you for allowing us to reach it because without the support of all of you, this would have never made it to a hundred episodes and, um, thank you. Thank you. And for a hundred episodes, I think it deserves a little cowbell, a little cowbell. It's been a long time since we've had a little cowbell on this show. So thank you. That cowbell goes out to all of you. Um, I can't thank you enough. I mean, really there's a lot of podcasts and it seems like every week there's more and more and more. And for this show to have carved out a few hours of your time each and every week, I, I can't thank you all enough. Um, and I did promise you a big, big guest for show 100. And I did promise you it's somebody you've never seen on here before. And uh, not because we haven't tried to do a show, but this week's guest lives um, lives life a little, um, in many ways, smarter than most of us. I mean, he lives somewhere where there's very little Wi-Fi, and um, it's hard to do an interview like this. And and I thought about asking him to to do this, but then I thought, well, it'd be much smarter if I asked his wife, Melissa, if she could help orchestrate this. So literally, the Cluns spent the night in a hotel. Went to Springfield, Missouri, spent the night in a hotel for me um, and to celebrate Valentine's Day and have dinner and all that sort of stuff. But I can't thank Melissa Klun enough for all the extra effort and everything that she did to make this possible. Um, and, and it's a show I've wanted to do for a very, very long time. Um, Rick Klun, and I think he's one of those people that People need to stop back and look and like Rick Clun's doing something that nobody in any other competitive activity is doing. As far as my research goes, I mean, Rick Clun is 76 years old and he is still competitive almost five decades, a year short of five decades into his career. Um, regardless of all those stats and winnings and things that I listed off at the very top of this, that's amazing to be still competing i mean literally it's 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 if you put it in baseball terms it's like having babe ruth playing baseball today 
it, you know, it, it, whoever you want to put it in terms of it just doesn't happen. I mean, people are freaking out because Tom Brady played till he was 45, which is incredible. Rick Klein is 76 years old. And not only is he competing, he's competitive and, and has won several times in the last number of years. I, I just think it's something that we'll never see happen again, most likely. Um, but it's also what is the coolest thing about our sport. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, how old you are, what color you are, um, male, female, but it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't judge. Fishing is for all of us. And Rick Klun is an inspiration to all of us. I mean, his famous line from when he won in 2019 was, don't ever accept that your best moments are behind you. And um, it amazes me that this is not something that is covered by more mainstream magazines. By more, like There should be an article in Sports Illustrated about Rick Klun, if you ask me. Because what he's doing is unfathomable. Um, and it's amazing, but, but maybe part of the reason is because you, you have to convince them to go to a, a hotel. So we have Wi-Fi. Maybe, maybe that's why there's less public publicity around it. And maybe another reason is it's cause it's Rick. I mean, he is one of the most down to earth, humble, accomplished anglers there is, um, in a world where we get so used to people tooting their own horn. Rick shies away from that. Rick. Rick just is happy to be doing what he does and um, doesn't believe in Hall of Fames, doesn't believe in a lot of things that accolades that many people in his age bracket are chasing. He's chasing life and enjoying and loving life. And this week's show, it's deep, but what else would you expect from Rick Clunt? I mean, it, 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 what inspires me about Rick Klun isn't just what he's accomplished in this sport. Rick Klun understands the sport of bass fishing, but I feel like Rick Klun understands life. And I don't care whether you're a teenager watching this, a senior citizen, or anybody in between. This is some of the most motivational, inspirational stuff that's ever been spoken. And it's being spoken by, I mean, before we... I always call him a living legend. He truly is. One of the most overused words in the world right now is legend. You see people calling people, that, that guy's a legend. That's a, No, they're not. But this guy, this guy is a legend. And, um, and he is our guest this week. So without further ado, let's go all the way to Springfield, Missouri, where he's waiting in a hotel to talk to us. The one and only legendary... Mr. Rick Clunt. Rick, I thank you very much for being, I mean, our hundredth guest. I mean, an honorary guest. Well, I kind of feel mutual about that because we've known each other now several years. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and when you say you know somebody, it take for me, it takes time. And I, I'm, I suspect it does for you. You know, you, you have often have to pretend in our sport that uh, you're probably friends with people that you may not be. And I don't take that as a negative because most of the time we haven't had a chance to really to get to know the person outside of the role they're playing. Yeah. Do, do you think you play a role in life? Is there times you, are you always genuine or are, is there times when you're playing a role? 
Oh, probably I can't be the one who completely answers that. It would probably have to be some other people around me. I try to be authentic and genuine because the one, you know, social media to me is, is it gave us a platform to show our worth to the industry, which we did not have before. But it also is a double-edged sword that I, is that if you do too much of it, it it's hard to stay genuine. You, yeah. you got to start making up stuff to talk about. So I really try to find a balance there. And that's why I've kind of eased into it is to try to find a balance where you're really saying something positive and something worth the people listening to. I agree with that. And I think the, I think, but I think if we're all being genuine, there's a lot of times that people play a role. You want to be genuine, but, but, I mean, hey, if you're feeling under the weather or whatever, you still have to do your job. And I think the more elevated, like for someone like a Zona or somebody like a Swindle, I think that is a lot tougher because, you know, when they meet Gerald Swindle, they want Larry the Cable Guy. They don't want to hear that my back sore today or, or whatever. Right. And then that's where I think I, you, well, part of the toughness in what you do is you have to you can't let your real feelings always show. Uh, I sometimes, unfortunately, especially historically do. Uh, but historically though, in the early days, you know, people get on Iconelli about showing everything, you know, you know, he's very transparent. But uh, I was too in the early days. I threw some fits and broke some rods and, but Bob, Ray Scott would be there with Bob Cobb and the cameras, and they said, "We can't put that on TV." Well, now they just—it's on immediately. So, uh, so yeah, they hid me. They hid my little, you know, uh, bits a little better than they're they're hidden by some nowadays. So this is an opportunity for you to just be open about all that. Tell me what your worst freakout that's been hidden from the world was. <laughs> oh, it's. And it's really just in a, in a tournament context. Uh, yeah. My worst was when Jim Bitters won the, one of the first mega books we had, and it was on the Harris chain. And I broke off two, lost one and broke one off, two six-pounders in a row, and I would have won the tournament with, with just one of them. And I literally took my rods kind of and just crushed them on the side of the boat and picked up another one and crushed it. And and since I don't even know what I was saying, but it wasn't pretty. And uh, but then that's when I finally heard uh, Ray goes, "We can't show any of that, Bob. We can't show any of that." So, but and they didn't. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of shocked though. Like I mean, you you realize that you to the fishing world are this stoic, almost a almost a mixture of Chuck Norris and a ninja all wrapped up into one with a fishing rod i mean people would never imagine that you would let that kind of emotion come out is is that emotion still in you or have you just realized how to funnel it better it's not all still there and and i wish it was to be honest with you uh because that that same emotion when it's directed in the proper direction with that same energy turn ordinary days into extraordinary days. Now there was days when it ate you up, you know, and you had 
you, you know, you went into your pity parties, which was never any good. Uh, but still, at the same time, it's and you've heard it over and over. But you know, it's it's our failures that teach us everything. And if you take those in the proper context, you're going to get better. And so I always, I sometimes wish that same emotion was there. In those days, it was never okay to lose. Unfortunately, nowadays, I say I I can't I even find myself saying it's okay. You know, I'm not doing well. It's okay. But also back then, there was other reasons it wasn't okay. And it's like, uh, were you going to have enough money to get home without stopping and getting a job? I think a lot of people forget about that struggle in your career, just just simply because your career has been as long as it has been. People, you know, like to paint this fairy tale that, you know, back in the day when pros started, it was so much easier. It wasn't about money. It, well, you weren't risking, but. I don't think that's changed at all. I, you struggled as hard as anyone to make it in this sport, did you not? Absolutely. Uh, I uh, the only blessing that I had over what I, I I see nowadays with the young anglers is thank goodness there weren't credit cards. They were <laughs> they weren't eating me alive and having to pay enormous interest on the end. It's just the cash you had in your pocket, the couple of guy trips you got before you left to go to the tournament. And then knowing even then you had enough to get there, but you didn't have enough to get back if you didn't draw a check. And uh, it was uh, so. And but see, here's where I'm still different uh, and and not necessarily in a good way. But I didn't get in the sport to make a lot of money. Uh, Nowadays, due to the class, they can do a lot of the the hype, especially in the Ray Scott days of his selling. You win a tournament and you win a million dollars, which never was true. Uh, you can make a million, but is that I got into it simply, I observed all the people at Exxon that I worked in downtown Houston fighting rush hour traffic every day, going up to the 10th floor, working for the second largest computing center in the world. And and yet most of the people there were just making enough to pay their bills. And most of them were fighting the stress of, of, of modern corporations. And so when I quit, I, my only goal was to be good enough that I could just pay my bills. I, I, I never thought about having a TV show and making millions of dollars. Never did. Still don't really. And that, that, that's a fault. Uh, I simply wanted to make a living, something I love to do, and be able to pay my bills. That's all I wanted. And going on next year, 50 years, I have done that. I've, yeah, I've done better, but at the same time, those early days were really the days that uh, makes you, may, makes me appreciate it. Because uh, I kind of lied to myself when I quit Exxon. I told my I had been to college enough before I flunked out that you know in business administration they said any business you go into give it three years before you make a final decision. So when I quit Exxon and went into fishing BASS, that's what I told myself. But my second year, by my second year, it didn't take three. I was totally broke, lost a brand new house. Come the old Hollywood story of coming home and finding your wife and your one daughter, only daughter at that time, locked out of the house. Uh, you know, that was uh, that was. But here, here's what I. That's when I realized I'd lied to myself, because even though by all 
any any judgment, anybody looking at my situation, including me, including you know parents, uh, including friends, I was a failure. But here's the strange thing: I was a failure by all descriptions of what we call success, and yet I liked myself more than I ever had liked myself in my life. Confused me. I liked myself more than I did like myself in my whole life, and. Uh, and that's when I knew I was never quitting. I had to figure it out and I had to make it work somehow. Wow. Wow. And, and, and but that's the true, truest statement in life. Like, because if you judge your happiness and your place on earth on what other people think, you'll never find true happiness. Where if you're saying everything's as low as it could be outward looking, you know, financially and that sort of thing, but you were a happier person. So is, is, is that what drove you to become who you are? The, the happiness of being in nature? Well, I didn't even, I didn't even, didn't appreciate how big a role nature was, even at that time. Really? Uh, it came, no, I didn't. I, I, I that came slowly over time. Because um, my dad was a hunter and a fisherman, we I spent so many hours walking through the mountains in southeast Oklahoma, hunting squirrels and fishing the creeks with him. And I watched him and observed him under his understanding of nature and the simplest things in nature. And uh, and yet I took it was just natural to me. And uh, you know, I, I it wasn't like oh this is something I got to get better at or, or appreciate. And that's really the key word is. It, it, nature, and even when I found out my oldest son was going to be born, and we were living in New Mexico, Melissa and I, it hit me that I have to move from New Mexico to back to Missouri, and I have to find a place on a on this mountain, uh, Ozark stream, to raise him, because by now I know that nature is going to teach him in a better and more than I ever could. But he had to, but you have to be exposed to it. And it, and you can't force him to do that. You can't tell him to go out there and, and you know, make a survival tent and make fire out of, out of two sticks and think they're going to be okay with it. But at the same time, I even see it now that when they go to a real life and a job and stuff, now they, they, I could, they, he repeatedly goes, I need to get back in the woods. You know, I need to go and sit back on that little cliff overlooking the creek that we call Eagle Bluff. So there's something there that, and here's the thing, the big thing is, is that the fishing is the last remaining vehicle that allows the masses to do that. There is no other vehicle left. And without fishing, creating this arena that we can immerse ourselves in nature, you know, nature is, is still the greatest source of sanity left. Yeah. And uh, and you know how it feels. He, my dad used to say it when I was growing up. I listened to him, Daphne, and then my mom's name. He said, Daphne, I got to get out on the water or in the woods this weekend. I'm going crazy. And I thought he was just being funny. He wasn't. <laughs> he really was going to go crazy. And what was true for him is true for society. And that's why fishing, we overlook it. That's one of its greatest benefits. It's a vehicle that allows the masses still to get out in the woods and on the water. It's wild because you're telling me that story. And in the last five years, we literally moved back to the lake that I grew up on. Like I live up 
uh, this house we're in right now is this is on the street that I grew up on. And it was the same thing that kind of drove me to that where I was like, we were very happy in the house. You know, it wasn't that far away. It's in the same town. And but I was like, our kids need to experience those summer afternoons where you're literally floating down the lake through pad beds and you're looking at, you know what I mean? Like there's, I look at my life and I get to spend a lot of time in nature, but there's only one time in your life where you're that disconnected to anything else and nothing matters, but what's it's the wonder of youth, I guess. Um, so to hear you say that just kind of blows me away because I feel the same way. And I, and I, and I feel like we should have done it sooner with our kids because it's, it just gives something, but, but I mean, at least we finally did it. So I understand where you're coming from there. So tell me this, what, when did you, like as a child growing up in nature, in the woods, when did you realize that there was such a thing as pro fishing? And when did you realize that that, that was even an option? I wasn't a child when I realized that. I mean, it was when I watched, I saw the first Bassmaster Classic on Lake Mead, Bobby Murray won. And, and all of a sudden, I became a little bit like Nacho Libre, you know, I go, I want a little piece of the glory, too. You know, <laughs> I, 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 he just won $10,000 fishing, and I love the fish. But back then, professional fishing didn't exist. You know, it, but yeah, I, so at that point, I was thinking more in the terms of I want to be a, a wildlife biologist, or I wanted to own a little tackle store, or I wanted to sell minnows, you know, you know how your child child's mind works. And I was trying to, okay, what can what can get me create an avenue for me to connect with nature? But it was only when the Bassmaster Classic became in existence, which you're fixing to go to here pretty quick, uh, uh, that really I started entertaining that thought. And so and this is where again I'm a lot different from the, some of the young anglers. I was probably in my early to mid twenties. Yeah. And, you know, and the thing that finally gave me the courage was my father-in-law at that time was an avid golfer and was a good one until he, he worked for NASA manned spacecraft center until he smashed his hand in one of their devices and he couldn't golf anymore. But he was, we hit every weekend that I was at the house, he would be watching a, a golf tournament, you know, and, I can't tell you how many times I heard him say, I could have done that. I could have done that. I was good. I was good. Enough. I could I could have beat them guys. I was that good. And finally, you know, I kept entertaining the ideal. And my due diligence was terrible as far as figuring it out. I, I didn't plan it very well. But how, how can I do that? Because I don't want to be him. I don't want to. And I, I loved him, don't get me wrong, but I don't want to be sitting here when I'm 50, 60 years old saying I could have done that. At least wanted to try, you know. And if I tried and failed, at least I knew I tried. So that's really when it started all the kind of. And then, in, you know, in March of 1974, I quit my job and started, you know, fishing the BASS circuit. How crazy did people think you were? I mean, you had a good job. You, you everything was laid out in front of you. But how crazy? I mean, did you get support from people around you, or did they? Uh. I was very fortunate. I uh, I know they all thought I was crazy. My dad's the only one that basically said anything, but he didn't. My dad 
I watched him fail at several things, but the one thing I admired most about him was he wasn't a quitter. He, he would pick up and, and figure out, okay, we're going to make it. We're going to survive. I'm, I'm, we're going to figure it out. And so he, I think part of that was in me. And, and I, uh, but he, when I, when I told him what I was doing, he basically looked at me and said, if that's really what you want to do, do it, but you're going to start to death. That's all he told me. And, uh, and he was pretty close to being true. Um, the, but and the, the, the amazing thing, my family, who had to think I'd gone off the deep end, that I was on some type of drug, which I didn't even know what drugs were back then. So that wasn't it. <laughs> uh, it. You know, the only thing I ever took my whole life was one aspirin and uh, a day. But anyway, but they, but that's where you have to appreciate them because they never once, you know, condemn me for it or, yeah. or, or chastise me. And I, it, it amazes me to this day. I don't know that I could have done what they did. Um, because like I just explained earlier, you know, I lost everything real quick in about two years. And uh, so I had to rent a little rent house. I was trying to start a guide service to have something to do in between. Nobody knew who you were. So you might get one booking that would usually cancel on you anyway a month. and. Uh, and finally, of course, what changed was the third year when I won the Classic at Gunnersville in 1976, and overnight it all changed. How, how, when you say it changed overnight, what was the difference? Like, how much did it change? Uh, more than more than I can explain. Uh, wow. All, you know, sponsors started showing up. Uh, and then I went it again the following year, which nobody had ever done, uh, where I was trying to do my guide service and I was barely getting, you know, a handful of calls. All of a sudden I had companies calling me and going, how many days you got open? And I'd go, I got 130 days open. And they go, we'll take them all. We'll pay you in advance, even if they don't show up. Wow. Stuff, I mean, just things like that just blow you, blow your mind away. And uh, I, uh, you know, it's, so it's, and again, like I said, you know, the, the one thing that, that, that the sponsors, and I didn't ask a lot of my sponsors, I, I then looked at the business this way in simple terms. If I can get enough sponsors to pay my entry fees and my expenses and my bills, which we didn't have many bills because at that time we were living in a $125 rent house on Lake Conroe. Uh, if I can do that, then anything I make in a tournament is profit. And when you start winning, then you have land, you have land, landfall profits. And I started winning. So it, it seemed like, you know, you know, Dave, you've done it. It seems like it happened fast. And in reality, it did, did not necessarily happen as fast as it seems. Yet everyone on the outside, it always seems like it's overnight, but you've, you've been starving and clawing to get to where you are so it's not truly overnight but before that win were you ever at a point where you thought hey maybe i just need to go back to work and stop this no that was the scary part like i explained earlier where i told myself i would do that if i couldn't make it i and i and the thing that popped it off was this this 
liking yourself. I never knew I didn't until all of a sudden for the first time I can say I like myself. I mean, literally said, I like myself more than I've ever liked myself in my whole life. And there's no good reason to. By everybody else's you know, standards, I'm a failure. Even should be by my own standards. You know, my family doesn't have a house to live in, you know. Um, and so, but and I, but and I knew when that hit me, I knew I would never go back. And but I also then knew I had to take this to another level. I, you know, I can't sit there and work off the same assumptions I used to work off with about tournament fishing. I had to analyze it. I had to study it. I had to take it to a level nobody had taken it to. That's one of my favorite qualities about you. Um, you're very analytical. You, you, where I'm the opposite. You know, my mouth just goes and goes. But you, every word that comes out of your mouth is thought through and and analyzed. I feel. Have you? Were you always that way? Were you always very analytical growing up? No, I don't think so. Uh, and like I said, I was. I had no. I didn't. When I quit my job at Exxon, I had done nothing to prepare myself for not having a job. So, you know, so no, I was not, my due diligence was terrible. You know, trying to study, okay, what is, what's it going to take? Do you, do, do you need to have a budget? You know, you need to have a budget. What's it going to cost you? How are you going to get that money and then pay you what your bills are? And no, I just winged it. And uh, I was like, one of my favorite movies is Brother, Son, Sister, Man. It's a story of Francis of Assisi and how he goes from being this knight and, you know, in the Great Crusades to come back from the, the, the wars. And, uh, and he looks out in the field. Now all he wants to be is the bird, the little bird who's chasing bugs and the butterflies who, who, don't, who don't plan the future. They just live the now. They trust that the, right now a bug will fly by and I'll be able to eat it. I mean, and I know some of this is not making a whole lot of sense to you, but it was basically, and that's one of the things too that, that I learned in fishing they were, that, that was connected was that um, you, you have, you know it, Dave, you're, you're really, a, a lot of people don't know about you is you're extremely, knowledgeable good angler and you know that fishing in the moment is the most important thing you can do and you and I, I like i got a lot of experience but that experience can be baggage it can be yeah. that that your intellect intellect throws at you oh this is what you did it two years ago this is what you did the last time you were here this is what you did that's irrelevant at, at least at that point that's irrelevant what's going on right now is the only thing that's relevant and that's kind of the way, you know, I was about the business side. I always felt that it would appear. Uh, in Jonathan Livingston Seagull, there's, there's a statement that says, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And that's kind of the way I built that life back and still do to some degree. I've I've noticed with you, and and I don't know if this is real or I just have created it in my head. I feel like 
I've seen different evolutions of you, even in the whatever 15 years or whatever I've been around bass. I've seen, I feel like before the split, you were a lot more fishing tournaments for Rick Clunt. You know what I mean? For, for you to, but I, I feel like after the split, the, the amount of time I see you with rookies and I see you with young anglers, you know, imparting knowledge. And I, I mean, I don't know what you, the conversations are. I just see it from a distance. But do you feel that, that there's been several evolutions of you throughout your career? I hope so. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm in, I'm in the middle of one right now, and, and it's, it's been a tough one. Uh, but I've also started having some some success, even though the failures far outweighs the success. But you know, I've caught more thirty plus pound five fish limits than I've ever caught on the career, probably more than any angler at the elite levels. Yeah, uh, I've won two tournaments in about the seventy year age, uh, and those were due to changes I had to make. I had to I had to change that early style that I had that was so good to me. And that wasn't easy, and still not easy. But you know, and you see it, you see it now, of course, with electronics, but there's always been something you had to do to get better. And this is definitely, you know, one of the quantum leaps in that area where boys stuff is happening fast that you better get good at or you're not gonna be able to compete. And so yes, the evolution is important. And in fact, I, I don't know that I would enjoy it if it wasn't if you didn't have to evolve. I mean, you know, as Einstein made the statement that if, if the great creator come to me and said, I can give you one or two things, I can give you the, 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 the answer to the unified theory of, of physics, or I can allow you to search for it, which one would you prefer? And the adult thinks about and says, allow me to search for it, is the one I would prefer. And that's where we are in fishing. Things come along, continues that search, and we and you and you, first thing you got to do is recognize that you were wrong, because uh, <laughs> a lot of things that we were thinking are being are being disproven now with this new electronics we see that's coming on. So, yes, ev evolution is totally part of it. One of the things you mentioned about the old group and the new group, I've always gravitated toward the young anglers, even before the, the split took place, and people ask me that. Uh, and why? And it's really kind of simple. Is is the young anglers still have more positive reasons to succeed than the old anglers? As as we get old, you know, in, in the beginning, you gather a few little nuggets. Yeah. That, that'll show you, okay, if I do this and stick with what I know how to do, I'm really good at this, and then I can succeed. And they don't, have, but they don't have very many negative things. So they just go with what those few that, but as we get older, we start worrying about which direction the wind's blowing, what color your lure is, how many anglers are going to beat me to my spot, you know, uh, uh, and we start worrying about the business side of the sport. We start worrying about the politics in the sport, and and that I if I focused on that, I would have quit a long time ago. But I, I've always gravitated toward those who have more reasons to succeed than they do to fail. And unfortunately, too many of the old anglers uh, have too many reasons to fail. They have more reasons to fail than to succeed. They search for reasons at times. Absolutely. 
Is Absolutely. positivity the most important thing in this sport to, to keep a career together? Yeah, in fact, I'm trying to do, I'm studying momentum right now because it's always been one of the most intriguing things in the sport about me. And we see it at the classic level. I, it hit me when I won the, I won the classic in 76. I won it in 77. I was second in 78. I was third in 79. And so, and, and then I started winning other events. So you, this thing called momentum, you know, I really, I actually went back and started studying a lot of it. And then I wrote an article on peak performance 15, 20 years ago and went back and reread it and it, and it just blew me away. That, that, and and the blue, what blew me away is what controls that more than anything else, that momentum is your positive thoughts that yeah. create, that create, one positive decision creates another positive decision and another and another. But there are stages to how that momentum happens. And and I'm I'm probably going to write an article about it. But the positive part of it ultimately ends up being, or the negative part ends up being the biggest controlling factor in it. But, you know, it's it's easy. You've heard since you were a kid, your parents saying, you know, you got to change your attitude. The coach says, you got to change your attitude. Well, after you hear that for a while, you go, blankety blank that you know because we really don't know what that how to do it and what that means and then here's the other thing you know i remember chris lane when he won the classic down on the red river and then he won the next tournament we had at okeechobee and he yeah. was standing there and he, and he and he makes the statement and this is again he makes a statement uh you know uh when's this going to end you know when's, when's it going to be over and i looked at him i said it doesn't have to be, but if you think it's going to be, it will. And, and this is a friend of mine that's died now, but Mike Dyson always, he, he came up to me one time and he told me, and I was in one of these positive streaks, and he said, you still think, think you're, you're a fluke. And of course, being young and cocky, I kind of got mad at him, but he could whip my butt any day of the week, so I didn't do anything about it. But he said, I said, what do you mean I'm a fluke? He said, you think you're a fluke still. And until you realize you're not a fluke, then you're not going to reach the higher levels that you're trying to reach. And it boils down to another one of his favorite statements was, you got to take being unconsciously competent to consciously competent. And so and now you're getting back in the analytical part of me that you may not want to go too deep into no, no, that this show it goes whatever direction the guest wants to go. So, uh, I find your mind amazing that it's the most amazing thing about you to me is how number one, how you're able to. I mean, I don't know if you like this analogy, but I've referred to you as the Elton John of our sport because it's he's his career is five decades, your career is five decades, it's unfathomable. I mean. No, I take that as a compliment. Well, good. Music, music is one of the things I envy, I'm most envious that I never was good at. Really? Well, in my mom's side of the family was very musical. Her uncle was Tommy Duncan, who sung for Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. You know, his most famous song was the San Antonio Rose. And there's a picture of me sitting in his lap on his horse. And and they all played violins, and I've always wanted to be able to play a violin. And like you said, uh, Elton John is incredibly talented, you know. And uh, 
and creative. That's the part I like. It's the creativity, not just the talent. Because there's some good singers that never wrote a song, you know. But there's other musicians who did it all. And I think he's one of the ones who does it all. And you'd like to be able to do the same thing in what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I I think creativity is creativity is what I respect the most on earth. Like, I think there's a lot of, in every industry, there's a lot of copycats, you know, that do what they're, but I think when somebody's truly creative and they, I think it's the risk for me that I think is cool about that. Because to be creative, you have to be a risk taker in a lot of ways. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. And I do. And uh, how many people do you know currently that are that kind of person? Not the majority of people aren't, but I, I think I know I try to surround myself with people that I respect that way. But I would say the majority of people are not that way. No, the, the one I know is Johnny Morris. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I say that because I, I, I've spent you analyze, I've spent my whole life being with Johnny now about 30 years of trying to understand the man. I've accused him of not even being, I've accused him from being another planet and other things which were never. But then again, my favorite scientist, Einstein, came up with a quote and he uses the word creativity. He said, create, because he, he, he was always bumfuzzled by where his understanding of physics, quantum physics came from. And he always said, it came, it did not come from my intellectual mind. It come from someplace else. As Fishman, I translate that into intuition, gut feeling. But with, but it, Einstein made a statement about it. He said, creativity and imagination is, is our most powerful ability in human beings. And the intellectual mind is, is a faithful servant. But modern man has... Through, through corporate America, mostly, has basically elevated the intellectual mind to the master and forgotten about through creative, creative imaginable part of the mind. But here's the part of the, that fits what you said about they had to be kind of brave, is the other thing he said is that most people like that, and I definitely see this from Johnny Morris, have a very poorly developed sense of failure. And they, they don't fear things like most of us would when we try something like that. So you combine, so basically you said, you know, we need to go back, make the intellect, our, which is, that's the experience part of me that gets in the way all the time. It's got tons of data. Don't get me wrong, Johnny, he, he has the people there that has the data. Yeah. But the, but the, but the data, the intellectual data never makes the final decision. He's going to know what the numbers are, but his, he's, his heart's going to make the final decision. And so that's, again, I totally agree with your idea on create creative part and how important it is. If you lose that and you lose your imagination or what we call a childlike mind, it's over. I agree totally. Um, and, and the scary thing is I think more and more society wants that to be less, you know, whether it be what you learn in school. I mean, if you don't do math the exact same way that they tell you to do math, but you come like to me, 
if you can come up with that the right answer quicker in a different way in your head that to me is exciting to me that wow this somebody that didn't just follow on a chalkboard they they figured this out but the world's not like that uh you know so, so often you hear people just well you're doing it the wrong way i mean that happened to me growing up the, for whatever reason in my head the way i've always done math is i i add the tens you know what i mean and, and at the time they thought it was wrong like so if somebody said what's 100 plus 21 a simple you know answer but so in my head the way that comes together i don't add 100 to 21 i had 100 to 20 so i got 120 and then plus one it's one and i you know and i still do math like that and the weird thing is in school i remember growing up where they're like it's wrong what you're doing is wrong and i'm like but it's not wrong the answer is is correct yeah i have a, an aerospace engineer and my youngest son who uh the the world of math and, and basically you know he just made an 87 on, on a tough test uh when the average was 71 and he did kind of what you said he said i didn't give him the answers right, every time that but i showed him how to get the answers yeah and that and they graded him more on that than they did the actual answer itself hmm so, but then again, it's you know, education you know is uh, is, a, is a subject that you know that uh, original original education. I get this from my oldest child, and that is was actually designed just to create reliable workers. Yeah, you know, just they can add, they subtract, they can write, they can deal, and they become a faithful worker. But they didn't really want you to to be somebody that was rebelling against the the current institution. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of that stuff that if you dig deep into it, um, it, it was all for people to be reliable and just to stay in the lane. Don't get out of that lane because if you get out of that lane and, you know, that causes troubles. One of the things you just mentioned a few minutes ago was momentum. And that's definitely something you have felt in this sport. What does that feel like when you are there? Well, you know, what kind of really brought it back to my mind and back to the surface, it's always there and I'm always, but it was when I, the second day I went into an area I've been fishing and there was another boat in there. And this is first term of the two tournaments of the year. I don't know all these new rat boats. I don't know who they are. And I'm going down one side and they're going down the other and they're just waxing them, okay? And uh, finally, my marshal says, that's uh, out of ribbon. Well, he just won the tournament before. And, and I'm, so I watch him the rest of the day. Every decision he makes is correct. Uh -huh. And translates into production. And, and, I'm, I, and I'm, so I'm sitting there observing this thing called momentum at work in another person, you know, and yes, I've done, I've been there. And, uh, and you, you, and of course, when you, when you taste it perfection or you touched it briefly, it becomes an addiction that you've got to figure out how to do it again. And that becomes the hard part. So, and there's like four or five steps. I've studied a guy named Peterson who basically studies me momentum in all sports but he mostly deals with team sports there's always 
And there's like five steps that create creates momentum. But then he also, but he never really goes into how to maintain it. So it's still to me uh, something that I'm, I went back and read my article on peak performance that I wrote years ago. And uh, uh, it fascinates me how pompous it's gonna sound, but how far ahead I was uh, in understanding that. And, uh, and but the, you know, the, the initial stage in it is what you've already said. It's, it's something positive has to take place and to start the avalanche. And once that avalanche starts, then it just builds momentum and more and more it gets bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. So, you know, I, 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 you and I don't have time for me to explain what I understand about momentum and how to create it, how to maintain it. Uh, you know, but here, here's, here's, here's the two things that try to destroy it. And this is one thing that, that most people will not agree or don't want to understand. Your intellect will try to destroy it. Yeah. It is partnered with ego. And the ego, you know what the ego does. The ego and the intellect pair up together to, to, to destroy anything that they don't understand. And they don't understand momentum. They don't understand being in the zone like Michael Jordan does, you know, or like all sportsmen, you know, Patrick Mahomes and these, these guys. You know, in fishing, I know the steps to get there. And there's two ways. There's two ways that I get there. I've got there in the past, and it's and it's not an easy route. One is simply get back to nature, like you're talking about, and and immerse yourself in nature. To where you you know you know you, how many times you've heard this thing you got to think like a fish. Yeah. So you immerse yourself in nature to the point that all your senses are going to a higher level. Your smell, your hearing, your taste, your feel, your eyesight. You're starting to use it in ways you never used it before. You know, a friend of mine came back from Vietnam, and and it was the worst experience of his life. He was in the jungle. But he said, but then he made a statement to me. He said, I want to go back. And I go, Dalton, why do you want to go back? You just told me it's the worst thing. He said, because I was never so alive as I was when I was in that jungle. I could smell things. I could hear things. I could see through forests the way I've never been able to see through them before and see things. And fishing does the same thing to you. It's a vehicle that allows you, maybe not to the intensity, thank goodness, of Vietnam, but it allows you to start to hear, feel, smell, taste, and see things at a much higher level. That will get you to that state of mind that creates the zone or, or the momentum. There's, there's mental ways to do it. You know, some people pray, some people meditate, but there's trick that, that those are tricks and those are placebo tricks. And not completely if they're done correctly, but most of the time they're not done correctly. So there's a mental way and a physical way. And then of course you really should be combining the two together. Got it. I, I got. I, I don't. I think I'm gonna have. This is gonna be one podcast I'm gonna have to keep watching. To, but but that's what I. I honestly feel that way about a lot of our conversations. I mean, we have just a quick conversation side of the dock, and I walk away, and I, and I'll be talking to another angler, and I'll be thinking, wait a second, what did Rick mean by that? But I I think that's one of the coolest things about life, is you. I think the worst thing we do is right and wrong because right. 
wrong could be right to a person. You know what I mean? Like, it, I mean, you explained that when you first started, everything in the outside said what you were doing was wrong. But in your heart, everything was right. And as long as you trust that, you know, you end up where you are. Do you spend a lot of time focusing on momentum and trying to get things on your side? Some of those practices now while you compete, is that, or, or is that like a daily thing in life, whether you're competing or not? I knew, I know how I used to do it. Okay. And I can't, I haven't, I've, I quit doing it several years ago. In fact, when I won the Red Man All-American at Lake Havasu, and that was like 1988, I quit doing it. And I had, I'm not going to go into the reasons and all the reasons, but my oldest child is probably as advanced in it as anybody I've ever seen in my life. Now, he, he has yet to figure out what to use it for or how, how he should use it. But at the same time, it's reintroducing me to study in how the mind works, how the intuition works. And let me just give you, okay, something about the intellect is a faithful servant and intuition is the gift, okay? It's the ultimate gift mentally. And most people go, well, okay, explain the difference. And the best, best understanding I ever heard came from quantum physics. And it basically says, and now the genetics and where we are in modern genetics, that you can take one cell, one little thing of a human's body, and all the information of how to create that body is, is in that one cell. In other words, if that body is the universe and that one cell is you, basically quantum physics says, if you're one cell in the universe, all the knowledge of the universe is already contained within you. And so, the, but the key, and this is really what your question was, is how do we access it? Yeah. And, and that's, that's, people do that in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people try to do it through spirituality, through religion, to God. And some people, you know, try to do it through meditation. Of course, my best expert, and I've had people go, what's the difference between praying and meditation? The best answer I ever heard was praying is uh, talking to God and meditation is listening. And uh, so if you want to access all that knowledge out there and, that, and, and your gut, your intuition is to, has the ability to do that, then you're going to have to, you're, you're the one that's going to have to put the key in to unlock it and how you choose. I think no two people are going to do it the same way. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I see somebody like you and used him as an example, Tyler Rivette, the momentum that he's writing right now. I feel like there's times when an angler channels themselves into that position. And then there's times where an angler gets picked up on a wave and just doesn't want to fall off. And I feel like Tyler's there right now. And where, you know, and he self, you know, that first tournament, he said, you know, I didn't know that I, those fish would even be there the next day. Never mind all four days. I didn't know. But now you look at him and he's firing so quick and so fast. Like, it, it, so, so how does how does that help you catch more fish though is it just is it just you're more aware is it just you're you're making the decisions quicker like how does that transcend into our world well again i can get in trouble if i answer that one but uh the uh i'm not going to get in trouble 
So, um, Rick, can you really get in trouble at your age? I mean, I believe you're at the age where you could just do whatever the hell you want, and people will be like, "Well, that was Rick." <laughs> well, yeah, no, well, yeah. But anyway, let me try to give you an answer that's somewhat acceptable. Is and again, I, I'm going to go in an area that that, that I, you know, that. I was on a plane with Alton Jones, and you know Alton Jones is considered the preacher, right? Yeah. And uh, and anyway, we were talking on the plane, you know, my belief systems and his belief systems, and uh, and we got into the discussion about you know praying, and a lot of our guys pray, and and I told him, I said, have you ever heard? I said, okay, and again, this is kind of dangerous, but you're a father. Right, I'm a father. And if your child keeps coming up to you and he keeps asking you for help, and then he comes back and asks for help again, do you always give him, give them help? And my answer is I will as long as they've done everything they possibly can to help themselves. And then I will give them help. So my question, my deal with Alton was, you know. Pray like every, pray pray like hell that everything depends on God. But you better before you do that, you better work like hell that everything depends on you, and then combine the two together. And I think that's where a lot of guys like Tyler Ribbit and them again, they're working their butts off. And and sometimes the final deal, and I think Tyler hinted at it with me a little bit, was he lost some major sponsors right for the yeah. year, thing. and so he. Desperation is a funny thing. It really pushes some people to that next level. And as Einstein even said, it's when I was at my lowest and my tiredest is when these insights would come through. And so there's something to work in yourself to a level that you've done everything you possibly can and to the, even to the desperation point. And something else gets involved in you or in, from some other source. So I think in, that's the wave. I think if, if I was going to define what you said about the wave, that's the wave. But you have, you've, had, you've had to prepare yourself when that wave hits what you're, what you're going to do. Uh, and you've had to do everything you possibly could do to take full advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in Tyler's situation, I think you hit the nail on the head too. Extreme conditions put people in extreme. You know, some people when their backs against the wall, they lay down in the fetal position and they wait for it all to go away. And then there's other people who have no other instinct but to start swinging. <laughs> and and I think Tyler's that person. And I, and I think if you had said this to him before the season, hey, you lost your sponsor, your backs against the wall. You know you you're chasing this dream. This could be the best thing. You'd look like a fool because he'd lie. You know what I mean? In that moment, it's just, it sounds like window dressing. You know what I mean? You're just trying to make right. somebody feel bad about or good about a bad situation. But ultimately at the end of the day, his back was against the wall and we are seeing the best Tyler Rivette that we've seen in his elite series career. Um, so I think you nailed that. Yeah, and quoting Mike Dice again, now will he 
convert that into something that's that he can maintain for a reasonable amount of time. And maybe that's again, first of all, is he going to eventually say, man, this was a fluky deal, or is he going to eventually become consciously competent? And by analyzing those things and realizing those things. And, uh, you know, I've had parents come up to me and they have a young high school kid or, or even a college kid that's going to wants to go pro. And they asked me and they send me letters and show me stuff and they go. And one of their questions is, do you think he can make it? And my, my question is always this. Has he ever hit rock bottom? Because it's easy to be enthusiastic and excited when things are going good and passionate about something. But when you hit rock bottom, will those still be there? And if they are, I will say he, he can make it. But if so often those disappear and he, then he gets his own answer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's again, where all these young anglers and I admire them. I, like I said, and I feel for them at the same time, because it's, you got to push yourself. You got to push yourself where you've never been before. And uh, and then when you're at rock bottom, you got to have what it takes to, you know, keep going. So when in your career did did you feel like you made it? Uh, and it, you have to define made it. Most people define it in financial terms. Yeah. Uh, which I never did. And uh, I, uh, if, if anything, the financial part to me is the part that I've done the poorest job at this. I, I never wanted a TV show. And I knew back then that Roland and Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston, they were the ones making the money, not us guys fishing tournaments. Uh, is, but I never wanted to, to do a fishing show. That's not what I want. That's not what my passion passion was. And so it wasn't, it wasn't, about, it wasn't about the money. Me making it, for me, it's not going to be the same definition that even the people closest to me would have. Me making it was that I, Next year, I will have done something I love to do for 50 years, and I've paid my bills. And, uh, and there have been times in that 50 years when I didn't know if I could still pay my bills. So saying when you know you've made it, probably never. You know, if, if it's looked at from a financial standpoint. But you feel like you've made it, right? For what I set out to achieve, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I follow my dreams, and not too many people can do that for a few years, much less fifty. Yeah. Did you ever imagine when, when you first at twenty six years old, when you first said, "Hey, this is what I want to do"? Did you ever imagine that fifty years from now, forty nine years from now? I knew it was possible, but I probably didn't imagine it for myself. Because I always promoted the idea that fishing was not a was was a sport that you didn't care if you're black, white, blue, green, if you're female or male, it didn't care if you can what lift, you know, three hundred pounds over your head or run the hundred and nine flat. All you gotta do is just love to do it. 
And so part of me proven winning at 70 was to, was to prove what, that, what I said, is that even age, even, yeah, it's gonna get in the way. You know, I don't adhere to most human boundaries or that we set these timelines of terrible twos and, you know, all this other things, you know, when you turn 40, everything starts falling apart, you know, midlife crisis. I don't buy into those timelines, but you, age does, will, will start to restrict you, you know, even for those who take really, very good care of themselves. So, you know, even there, you know, I've had to, to continue to evolve, but also I'm 76 years old and I can still do what I love to do. There's not too many, I know, I know we live in an age now where Brady, Brady's trying to do it and LeBron James is, oh, you know, so it's not, so there's other people out there that done, do not want to put limitations on something. They want, they want to push those limits to another level. And I guess that's, I feel good that I've been able to do that. Do the victories in your seventies are they? Do they mean more to you? No, no, no. Does any victory mean more to you? Or are they all the, on par? The, the victories that meant the most to me are the dependent upon who was there when I won, and it's just an ego thing. So now we know we're dealing with the ego. Is probably the nineteen ninety classic that I won was one of the most important victories in my career because it's the first time my daughters thought I had a real job. Uh, wow. they, they, they told me many times, they would say, Dad, you want to get a real job in a store like other dads have? And then the, the next one was when I won that, uh, the one at uh, St. John's, the first one. And I'd called, I knew Melissa and River were flying in and I called them and got them and they just landed. And I was trying to stall and do everything I can so they could get there. And then all of a sudden, just waiting down to the last four or five guys to weigh in. And I'd finally see River with his little jersey, uh, fishing jersey on running through the crowd. I mean, with one of the best feelings I've ever had. Uh, and then, of course, Melissa, she's not going to get on the camera, but still just that, those are, are the best victories now. All the other victories, you know, are very, very meaningful. So don't mis misunderstand me. They're meaningful from the standpoint of what you and I are talking about to try to understand this process. And, and even though it sounds like we're making fishing is this one of the most important things that you can do. We're using terms, we're putting fishing in a context that a lot of people don't go, fishing is just fishing. Yeah, it is. But don't forget what I said earlier about it's the last remaining vehicle to keep the masses connected to nature. And that just like my dad, whose sanity depended on it, society's sanity will depend on it. I, I agree. And, and I do agree that there will be people that listen to this and are like, what, what are you like? It's just it's just fishing. But I, I think a lot of what you're saying isn't just fishing. It's life. You know what I mean? Like you're you're you've one of the most accomplished anglers in the history of this sport. And some of your most accomplished moments, like you just said, is, is watching your son come down a dock towards you to, to you know what I mean? It's not, it, it's, it's happiness you get out of life. What, um, 
Had you ever think of retiring? Like, did it ever hit you? Did like maybe I should stop because people say you should stop? Well, naturally, that's what a lot of people are going to assume on this fifty-year deal, which is twenty twenty-four. They're, they're going to assume there's going to be some of that rhetoric connected to it, but it isn't going to come from me. Uh, and did I ever think about it? I, only one time did I think about twice in my career did I think about quitting. I wouldn't think about retiring. I thought about quitting. And once was the first one was at at the Bassmaster Classic. I think it's the first one we had at Logan Martin. And Larry Nixon was in it, and I was in it. And I the first day I had thirty five boats behind me, and Larry had about thirty five forty behind him. And about midday, I decided to leave and try. I'm cutting across flats and everything, but these thirty five boats were staying right on my tail. And I went around a sharp bend and going up the river, and I met Larry with 35 boats behind him. <laughs> now, you got to imagine two covey of quail coming head to head with each other. Because you've never seen as big a mess and boats going up on the banks and dodging <laughs> each other. Oh, for sure, somebody got, is going to get killed. And that evening, Larry and I were in the back waiting to go on stage. And Larry said it before I did. He says, if that continues, I, I can't keep doing this. I said, I know, I can't either. And uh, so, you know, so there's been times, but I'll tell you the one thing that broke any thoughts of those was COVID. You know, COVID totally showed me a little bit of what retirement is. And don't misinterpret it. I think retirement, the retirement philosophy in America is a tragedy. But not completely if those people have used it correctly. It's, to me, I totally understand retiring from a job that you haven't wanted to do. And then if you have something you can go on to yeah. that you really love more. Like King Cook went on to this ranch that he loved more than anything else. My brother Randy Fife quit fishing and went on to building guns, which he loved more than fishing. So if you got something to go to, that's fine. But I'm not sure I know what that is. Uh, and so when COVID hit and we were home three or four or five months, if everything had been delayed or canceled the first two or three weeks is great but after that you realize you're getting in somebody's way mainly your wife and she does she's she's used to having you gone at certain times and then that's her domain and uh and so i realized real quick but here's the thing i realized more than that we could have gotten over all that problem of being around each other that much and your family, because the kids had to come home. The kids came home from college, and they were there. And so, but the thing that it, that got me more than that, I was in you know seventies, and all of a sudden, you you start to feel your body shut down. And I started to realize the thing that that challenged me physically and mentally my whole life has been taken away, at least for three or four or five months. And so there was nothing to challenge me mentally and physically. And so all, it's like a house that people nobody lives in anymore. The lights start to go off. And that's kind of hit me that I didn't like this feeling. I mean, I didn't like this feeling. Uh, I mean, and fishing is was basically my my video game. And it, it it was the one thing that would challenge me every day mentally and physically. And that's what keeps you alive. And that's what keeps you like, you know, 
It's like that my friend that went to Vietnam and said, I've never been so alive in my whole life. Take those things away and you'll realize what the things have made you feel the most alive. And for me, fishing has been one of them. Yeah, there's a big difference between living and existing. And I, and I think a lot of people spend their life existing and not living. I think you have lived 10 lives <laughs> in your life. When I look at, you know, like when I really start digging into the history of Rick Klon, it it amazes me. Like, like literally, if you took your career in 10 years at a time, it's a Hall of Fame career for the first 10 years. It's a Hall of Fame career the second 10. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's amazing what you've accomplished and the experiences that you've had. What What are some experiences that you look back and you're like, I can't believe that really happened? Well, let me get back to my, one of my favorite ones. And it was one of the toughest, when I was going through one of those tough stretches where I had enough money to get to the tournament. And the tournament was over in Eastern Tennessee someplace. And I did get a check, but I'd run out of money. And I'd stop in different places, see if anybody would cash this BASS check and nobody would. And, my, and I finally was totally out of gas and totally out of money. And I was in the middle of Memphis, Tennessee. And, uh, and I did have the only credit card I had at that time was an old Sears and Roebuck card. It wasn't worth a darn, but that's all I had. So I went in this Sears and Roebuck in Memphis, which is a 20-story building back then. And I went up to the credit department and I almost got on my hands and knees and begged them to cash a check and they wouldn't. So I'm going, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to get a job and you know do, do something to make some money just to get enough gas to get on from Memphis to Texas where I was still living. And I'm walking out this door and people are, 10 people are coming in and 10 of us are going out. And I looked off to my right and this person coming in and I couldn't believe it. It was Bill Dance's wife. And I'd only met her a couple of times at Classics. And I just... I yelled her name, Diane, and she, and of course, she cashed the check for me. And I still look back on that. What are the odds of her coming in and me going out at the same time? Yeah. And she, she's the only person. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, you can, you can. And so that was one of the things that was just totally unbelievable. And. Uh, and then there's, I mean, there's so many of the things that in, in the actual fishing and being on the water that, you know, we see amazing things uh, that most people never will never ever get to see. Uh, and it's, the uh, there's no two days exactly the same. You, you know that. Yeah. Is that what you love so much about the sport? That you can never fully learn it? Yeah, I'm like Einstein. I, I want the ability to search for the answers, but I don't want the answers. You know, we fool ourselves into thinking we do. And we want brief answers, and we want things that will, you know, translate into, into affirmations that we're doing, doing, it, doing something right, you know, and that we are achieving a little bit of what society wants to see from the immense success and, and, uh, but I, 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 the thing, I, I really changed a lot of the way I approached this board in 1988 when I won the Red Man All-American on Lake Havasu. First $100,000 payday. The classic back then wasn't paying 
ten or twenty thousand. Yeah. Redman All American was a hundred thousand, and I won it. But I was so in control. I had so much of these these abilities that I had been developing through visualization, meditation, uh, a lot of the Olympic stuff that was being used, even by the East Germans. You know, when you could get into visualization and and focusing and and extreme focusing and you know you see them getting a bobsled sitting on dry ground and they're just swerving reading the whole whole you know visualizing everything ahead i was into what the special forces do the special forces and i didn't realize this until i had one of them explain it to me that i was doing it that i was into anticipating in advance all possibilities ahead of time and having an answer for ever possible because I had a special forces guy come to my farm and talk to my sons and, and his cross country team and uh, and he made a statement to him one of them asked him how many friends have got killed and he said I've been on two missions and we've never lost one and he said how does that happen and that's when he brought that up he said because we anticipate everything in advance, anything that could possibly happen. We had to, and you do that as a fisherman, especially if you're in a Okay, if the wind's blowing this direction, if it rained all night, if another boat beats me there, we do the same thing. So at that time, when I won that tournament, I was as deep into all that as I've ever been. But at the same time, this, you know, crazy internal voice, I'm running to catch the last fish. I knew if I catch this last fish, it's over, I'm winning. And I have to run at 30 miles. And I'm running through this beautiful desert canyon and mesas on both sides of the lake. And I'm looking at one of the mesas and this voice came in my head. Now you know how it works, but you can no longer use it just to win another check and another trophy. And if I'd had brakes on that boat, I would have, I would burnt rubber on the lake because I just, it just stunned me. And I, and I quit doing it at that point. Took me a while to figure out why I was willing to quit doing it. But anyway, so that's when you asked me earlier if winning is the most important part. And your ego is always going to say, heck yes. And my, I still have an ego, so it's still there. But it, there's other reasons for doing it, and it's not to win another check or another trophy. Do you love winning or hate losing more? <laughs> you know the answer to that one. <laughs> losing is is sure. Trying to what what's the proper way to put it? The losing element is what has really made you who you are. Yeah. So you can't completely hate it, in the, you know. But you don't like it. <laughs> you don't like it, but you don't hate it because you realize it's what's molded you more than anything into who, who you are and who you became. So, um, so no, it's absolutely you know it's the losing that you that makes you go into a state of analysis paralysis more than anything else. Yeah, it, it fuels the. The losing fuels the victories i think you, you know because of every and that's the scariest thing about today where people don't keep scores and kids soccer games and stuff like that and you're like if you'd never lost how are you ever going to be driven to 
to win. You know, like that. I mean, that feeling that people feel, does it still affect you as much? I, I, I definitely there's at times, uh, I mean, I, losing the hardest thing for me the last 10 years has been losing my consistency, not necessarily winning or not winning. But I was so programmed to put a limit of fish, even when it's 10 fish every day in the boat, that I was going to catch, find more two pounders and catch more two pounders than anybody on the planet. And I became the best at that. And uh, and then the limits changed from seven to five. And and now those two pounders, you know, last year what, at, at uh, St. Louis River, I don't even think four pounders got some guys in the check. Yeah. So that's changed dramatically. Our waters have changed, I think, number one, due to catch and release, and due to the invasive species that we all criticize, that we, some of us love and others hate. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> it was one of my favorite terms at Seminole was how they were talking about all the invasive species in that lake. And, and, I, and I, I finally, I looked at my marshal the first day because he kept talking, man, look at all this stuff. It's invasive and it's all this. I said, I said, unless you're a Seminole Indian, nothing here is not an invasive species. <laughs> no. I said, she said, we're the biggest invasive species here. I said, no, I'm probably even the Seminole Indians at one point in time were an invasive species. So what's invasive? But, but you know, the, again, it's, uh, it's, I've lost my train of thought. Marshall, now you're going to have to bail me out. You're holding that mic again. Come on, tell me. <laughs> well, you were talking about um, invasive species. We got into invasive species to. Somewhere, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a good guy to come back at. I mean, I'm good at short questions. Well, um, what's the greatest advice you've ever been given in your life? That's a tough one. Because I wasn't a very good listener. <laughs> what's the greatest advice you can give to people from your life? It's too cliche to say, follow your heart. You know, how often do you, how often do you hear that? Yeah. But, um, but the fact that it's probably, you know, I mean, and it gets back to a lot of things we've already talked about is, you know, one of the questions I went to Drury College to talk to the college anglers there and, one of them finally said, well, how do you know when to leave an area? And I said, trust your heart, trust your gut. Most, most people have trouble with trust your heart, but we don't have a problem with trusting your gut feelings for some reason. And uh, uh, But gut feelings is, and, and especially if you throw intuition at them, which that's all, that's just the most, that's just the gut feeling at its highest level. Uh, that they struggle with, but they still, I can't find anything that's more important than that. You know, and, and, and again, the reason I say that because it doesn't matter what you're doing, you know, and then the, the other thing, and maybe it's what I said when I won in 2019, you know, never accept that all your greatest moments are in the past because we have a tendency, no matter what we do in life to do that. 
we all have some great moments. Don't, I mean, at least I think most people have some. But don't accept that, that you know, that there's no others coming. I mean, you know, there's things that are going to make them harder, but, you know. Um, so, you know, again, it's, again, it's so much of it's cliche, unfortunately, that we don't listen to them. And I was probably guilty of that as anybody. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made in your career? Hmm. I'll make tons of mistakes, but I don't regret any of them. Um, this one, I need my wife to sit in and sit beside me. She could probably tell me one real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Did you set missing? Are you still there, Dave? Oh, I'm here. I'm here. Paris on the phone now. Dog, it's, it's the picture I'm looking at on the phone. Somebody must be trying to call me. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But anyway, you know, we're, 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 so by, we're getting some kind of call on the phone, but it's no biggie. Now, what was the question? What was. Uh, what was biggest, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made in your career? But it turned out okay. I told Johnny Morris I wouldn't go to work for him. <laughs> Evidently, you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, this, but this is a neat, this is a neat story, and I'm going to tell you it's a story. But about three months before the the oil embargo hit. I, my biggest sponsor was Glastron Boken. And I had the biggest deal in the sport, angler-wise. Forrest Wood at Kentucky Lake came up to me after the tournament was over. Back then, Forrest Wood fished the tournaments. And he came up to me and said, Rick, would you mind me talking to you for a second? I said, heck no. He came over to me and he said, I know you're with Glastron Boat Company, but I just want you to know that as long as I'm in the sport, you'll never be without a boat. I went, wow. I didn't have any idea what cool. Within six months, Glastron was totally out of business due to the oil embargo. And uh, and and anyway, so eventually I went with Skeeter, and and eventually they were bought by Coleman, and eventually Revlon had a hostile takeover. And Johnny Morris, during that time frame, came to me and said, "Would you like to join Tracker Boats and Nitro Boats?" I said, "No." And 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 again, in less than a Six months, uh, the hostile takeover had run everybody I knew at Skeeter off. The Coleman, all the Coleman family was not there anymore, which they were great on it. And so I finally went back and asked Johnny if, if, if the offer was still good. And he said, Yeah, sure, come on. So that was almost the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. And that was just a business mistake. We yeah. can't go into personal ones. No, no, we don't need to get into that. If you, I think if there was a fishing Mount Rushmore, I definitely believe a bass fishing Mount Rushmore, you deserve to be on that. Who do uh, you think would be on that Mount Rushmore? Now you're getting into an area that I struggle with a lot. I don't understand heroes and fame and all that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't understand all the things. Uh, because nothing... You know, you hear the people say, well, that'll make you immortal. 
being in a Hall of Fame. Nobody will ever forget your name. And uh, we know that's not true. This planet won't be here another thousand years from now. So, so and fame to me, I, the thing that bugged me about it was there was two people that came up to me in my early career. And one of them, they called me a hero. And I didn't, I just didn't make me feel so bad. And they, because they looked at me like I was better than them. And I, I tried to tell them, look, I'm not a hero. Firemen, policemen, soldiers, those guys are they're risking their life can be a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm doing something selfishly that I love to do. And I'm good at it, but I'm not a hero. So being on the Mount Rushmore, no, no. Put a, put a Native American head up there. Don't put mine up there. Have you always been that way? Like when you were a kid? Sure. Did- My grandma made me that way. My grandma always told me, and she called me Iggy Bod. So don't get, but she she was my mom's mom. She she always said, you know, Iggy Bob, don't ever be tooting your own horn. And I did that stuck with me forever. So Is, you, go ahead. No, nothing. <laughs> I really want you to go ahead now because I feel like you were going to say something you would regret. Um, <laughs> Do you feel like you said one of your shortcomings in this sport is the business end of things? Do you feel like that could be one of the reasons why? Because just the fact of selling yourself. Absolutely. No, I, I, I never believed that I had to sell myself. I, I believe everything should, should be based on performance. If you perform, they will come to you. And that is true to an extent, but it's not true completely. And uh, and nowadays, so so many of these anglers that come in the sport sell themselves a thousand times better than I can sell myself. In fact, my best story there was that a writer asked me, what's the difference between you business-wise and Skeet Reese? And I said, hmm. Well, I said, most of the early anglers, and I include myself in that, we were just cheap whores. Skeet Reese is a very expensive call girl. <laughs> so, and it's true. They, they, these young guys come in, and that's the wrong words to use, but it's not necessarily with Skeet. But Skeet, was, he was a powerful salesman. He was asking numbers that I just could not believe that these companies would, would, uh, would get him. And so that's the lack in confidence and the lack of business sense. Uh, you're absolutely correct. I'm, that's been one of my business-wise. It's been one of my worst feelings. Is I've always believed, believed and still believe that your performance is what should dictate. You know who, and you're. And the other one thing is credibility. Now I've worked yeah. on that in my whole career. And anytime something comes out. You know, like when the walleye guys with the weights and stuff, and then you hear, you hear, I hear it in Ava restaurant. Well, they all those tournaments they do that. And then I can and fist fight if I listen to it. Yeah, that that's a. I hate that whole. I mean, that that's one of the. I mean, I don't think anything like that sets us. When people say, "Oh, that sets us back ten years and stuff like that," I don't think any of that. But I do think. 
that you're going to have to listen to people talk about that, those idiots that did that in a walleye tournament. You know what I mean? Like every time you go somewhere where you're interacting with people that find out what you do, I know for me, it's like, oh yeah, well, does this happen at Bassmaster events? Right. Um, so enough about those guys. They get enough credit uh, or they got enough press, I guess. Um, who do you, when you look at all the different young pros on the Elite Series now, does anyone remind you of a young Rick Clun? Yeah. John Cox. And he's not considered young, I know. But John Cox. Wow. Because the, the amount of events he fishes, the amount of days he was on the water, how hard he works, reminds me so much of me. Because I used to I used to be on the water over 300 days a year. I mean, between guiding and between tournaments. I'd fish 25 big tournaments a year, and that's why John, he fishes everything he can get in. And uh, so, and, and, and I don't know John. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just relating to what I observe about him as an angler. I think you're very dead on, though. You know, like I, said, I didn't. I when I asked the question, I didn't have an answer preconceived in my head. But as soon as you said it, I was like, because you, because you're, you're very similar in the way that the act is more important than the result. If, if I'm saying that correctly, like John has to fish and he has to, and he's very natural and he's very, and it's not about like one of the things that shocked me about John is I remember when he was trying to balance doing the elite series and other things we were on the phone and he said, uh, he said, well, I have to do this because that's six weeks in a row that I have a shot at $10,000 which was the last place or the 50th, not last place, but 50th place check in, in all the events. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that, that puzzled me because I was like, I would think somebody that's achieved what he has I means won a lot of tournaments. He's, I would think he'd be looking at that's a chance at $600,000 over those six weeks. You know what I mean? And he, but, but I feel like that keeping it simple and, keeping himself grounded that's what allows him to to be as free and natural you know the more time he spends away from the water the noisier world the world seems to get around him absolutely no it's uh he's you know it's and it's and he's he, he doesn't have a huge concern about sponsors and again that nails me i've had some really good ones but i've, I've never concerned myself with Trying to have, I always accuse Brew Dave's of being fat and getting having a bigger belly every year, so I can put another patch on it. <laughs> so, uh, so, but I, I never did. But now I'm not saying I did it right. In some ways, I didn't. Have sponsors always been a conflict in your life? Like I feel yeah. like you'd be one of those people who you're happy to work with the company, but you really don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> No, and, and, and you're right. Uh, I love working with Johnny Morris, but yeah. I don't I don't like working with his corporate people because they are the ones who have, have elevated the intellect to the master, and they do not understand anything about me, anything about the sport. John, thank goodness Johnny is still there. 
because he uses them, but he doesn't allow them to make the final decisions. Now, I love working with people like Johnny, but he's rare. Uh, and, you know, there's another good guy, that Dennis, his name is Dennis for Battleborn. He's, he's, he totally wants to make the world better, environmentally speaking. But he's about, he's the CEO of Battleborn. He's one I wish I could work with more, but not about the business side, just about his, you know, earth side, the way he's trying to do the solar solar stuff and all that kind of thing. So yeah, there the pop now the the that side of the sport is no fun at all. And uh, even wasn't back when I was, I mean, I'd get letters from my from my sponsors back when I won the classic in 77 and 76. Now you mentioned our bait six times, but you you mentioned Jim Beckley seven. How come? I said, that's the fish mentioned them. I didn't mention that. That was just the way I caught them. six fish on that bait, six seven on this one. I said, that's all it was. I'm not trying to change her makeup or, or you know. So yeah, no, you're right. I, 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 I'm not. I'm sure I haven't been real fun for them either. But well, that's one of the advantages. I think, like I said earlier, I think a person gets to a certain age, has accomplished a certain amount, and like I couldn't probably say what you just said. Like if I was sponsored by a company, I couldn't say that. I like dealing with the owner, but I don't like dealing with the people that. But I think Rick Clun can get away with that because you're just being honest. Well, and, and that's when, because you're dealing with somebody that's being honest with you. It's, it's, yeah. reciprocal, it's reciprocal, and that's why. And, uh, you know, and it's and it's not fair to the, the corporate people that you have to deal with because they don't understand. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they, they're simply following what their marketing teacher taught them in college or what their previous boss taught them, you know, it's, that's, that's their, their truth. And so, you know, they're doing the, trying to do the best there they can do too. So it's not like they're the enemy because they're not, it's just that, you know, it's the first time I ever walked in a bath pro shop, the, the grandfather store in Springfield is there. It's the first time that I felt bona fide. Really? Uh, it's the first time I ever felt, you know, that hunters and fishermen are okay. Because before then, we weren't. I can't tell you how many times in my young career I'd be in Canal in Florida and I'd be going up there practicing. And uh, and this, these old guys that retire would walk down and start spraying with the water hose and say, what are you doing in this canal? Don't you have a job? And you said, tell them this is your job. You want to get, then you're here, get an earful, you know. And uh, so, I mean, it's, it, you know, most people, if you tell them you were a professional fisherman, they thought, thought you were on the shrimp boat. So, uh, uh, which might have been better at times. <laughs> so, what's left? What is the goal for you moving forward in this sport? It's really for me. It's, it's a fascination of, of, of it's the same thing. It's the same thing that happened the final day that I described fishing around Tyler River. With he taught me something. And when I go in the water and I don't learn something, then I don't want to be there anymore. But he taught me something. 
and and I know I have I'll have to reinvent myself. And so you got to you got to like I said, you got you don't know where that teacher's coming from, and you don't know what they're going to look like. But you got to be open to to the possibility that they got something that that they can teach you. And uh, you know it's. There's, like I said, it's not about, yeah, I've, I've got to pay the bills still like everybody else. And like I originally said, that's all I wanted to do. But it's not about winning another trophy. I like those blue trophies, don't get me wrong. But uh, it's not about winning another trophy. Uh, you know, it's, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who have more of those trophies than I do. Yeah, but the trophy, I, I feel talking to you and knowing you, I feel like the trophy is every day. And, and and not to paint you as a saint, like you're always, oh, wow, he, you know, loves every single day. But I feel like it's more about the climb than it is about standing on the peak. Well, and you kind of hinted at it earlier in something you said. Uh, and then that's a different way of saying it. But the thing that, that I'm attempting to do right now, and again, it's part of my mental game, and I've been playing mental games my whole life, is, is one of the real keys to fishing at your best and you, is to surrender the outcome ahead of time. Because if you're an outcome-based person and you're just trying to predict the outcome of winning or losing that's going to happen three or four days from now, you're, you're, you're totally doing it wrong. You're totally not allowing things to naturally unfold. You're trying to force them to be a certain way. And that never works. You can't, you have to allow the, the natural world to naturally unfold and then you have to react to it properly. You can't make it be something that you want it to be, you know. And uh, so and, and one of the key terms is if you want to fish at your best, you got to surrender the outcome. And I like to fish at my best. I, I don't have to win. The best classic I ever fished, I didn't win. George Cochran won on the Ohio River. But it was the best classic I ever fished. So you Why? just want to you just want to fish. Just Why was it the best? Because of my execution, my mental decisions, my willingness to to change, my willingness to everything it takes to win, I did. I just didn't win. I didn't, you know. So, but that was okay. So, but yeah, I, I know you had Randy block it on one time. Uh -huh. And Randy one time, because he got involved with a lot of this mental stuff with me at one time. And I remember at the Pittsburgh Classic, I think, it may have been a different one, but he 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 was into the way my brain, I, you know, I go through meditation and visualization, visualizing the outcome of the tournament, and then meditating on it over and over and over and over, and, and doing that whole thing that, you know, talked about earlier and just see myself winning and uh, and he says well what if i'm doing the same thing who wins and i said we both did <laughs> again change the subject <laughs> i have one this has gone way long this has been super fascinating um for me um but i have one other topic that i do want to talk to you about because and you you just laid out the perfect segue randy block it it's the one thing that he hates on earth forward facing sonar 
where are you at with that? I fished with Daryl, I mean, uh, Carl Lawrence when he first came out with the little green box and then his, his venture on a few of his other binders, but it was before the paper graph. And at that time, the state of Minnesota was trying to outlaw his little green boxes that they shouldn't be allowed to be used when fishing. And, uh, and he was so disappointed because he said, why did they want to outlaw something they're, they're not even using correctly to begin with? And, and I, that, that little green, you know, all my awareness, I was talking a lot about it earlier, it's above the water. Everything under the water, I'm having to somewhat guess at, except maybe the feel of your worm and your sinker crawling across the bottom, and you can visualize what kind of bottom it is and what it's doing. The rest of your senses are above the water. And so we, we even Buck Perry, who was the father of structure fishing and, and really was way ahead of his time. Yeah. Uh, but he was still very incorrect about a lot of it. And that's what forward facing sonar. So anything that's adding to our knowledge, why do we don't like it? Why do we try to outlaw it? Why do we try to demonize it? Because that's all this, that forward facing to me is amazing that it is actually adding so much to my knowledge and my understanding of big bass, of schools of bass, of what we used to refer to as structured bass. We were, we were, we were right only partially, you might say 20, 30% of the time, the other 70% of the time we were wrong. So to me, something that's going to teach me, just like I left that cove with Tyler Rivet and I was taught something, I am all for now. The fish will adjust to it. They adjust to everything we do. I agree with all that. And um, and I think that's a big thing that people keep underestimating, whether it be invasive species, electronics. I mean, for invasive species, you've heard how zebra mussels are going to kill the Great Lakes. Gobies are going to kill the Great Lakes. All of them have helped in, in many ways. Um, but we also used to be able to catch every fish on a 2D graph when you dropped on them. And you can't do that anymore because fish adapt. And I think that's people way underestimate fish. They've been around a long time and, and they'll be around a long time in the future. But I've kept you way too long. And but I cannot thank you enough, number one, um, for the inspiration that you give so many people, myself included, on a daily basis, and uh and for agreeing to have this really candid really cool conversation if you ask me and i appreciate you that's sincere that's genuine and that's so don't think i'm putting on playing a role here well I really, i've learned that i've had to learn that but i do <laughs> did it take a while oh yeah <laughs> yeah the two hardest you know anytime you get you know you and zona have been the two hardest for me really yeah, but you're you you're you were easier than some. I trust you. I'm not sure I still trust <laughs> Why were we so hard? Just because we wouldn't shut up enough? <laughs> no. I see I had to respect that when you were talking about fishing, you knew something about fishing. And it took me time to realize that y'all both did. Okay. Because I have that we have had some announcers in the past that really don't, they don't know 
what rock bottom is. When, when that anguish hit rock bottom, they don't know what desperation is really, you know. And if they did, then you know they. Uh, so I, you learn to appreciate people that understand some of these things that are not easy to understand. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad that you, I mean, you should, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't want to be on Mount Rushmore now. Don't even think about it. Uh, maybe we'll name that. We'll, maybe, maybe that's the name of this show. I don't want to be on Mount Rushmore. Um, but then again, the people on Mount Rushmore probably never wanted to be on Mount Rushmore. Well, I don't know. Maybe they did. I mean, there's some egomaniacs out there. But Rick Klund, you are an incredible, incredible man. And I thank you uh, for, for for being who you are. You too. And I'll see you at the Classic. We'll see you soon. There you have it. The legendary Mr. Rick Klund. And I can't thank... Rick and Melissa Klund for everything they did to be part of this show. But more importantly than that, Rick, thank you for everything that you do, everything that you are, and um, everything that you've taught us all. Um, I mean, Rick Klund is, is truly a living legend. There's going to be a time in the future where people will look back and be like, man, I saw Rick Klund compete. I mean, next year will be his fifth decade of competition. So what I'm saying is breathe it in, folks. Enjoy it. Learn from this amazing man because um, I, I know I am. And um, this show was really deep. And, you know, it's weird because a lot of times people try to pigeonhole a podcast or a show into like, oh, that's one that'll make me laugh. That's one that'll make me this. This show's never been any of that. Some of these shows are hilarious. Some of these shows are super deep. Some of these shows are super emotional. This show, although my name is the name of the show, the show is all about the guests to take it in the direction that they want for them to be real. And that's all I ask, for them to be as real as possible. And I can't thank Rick Clun enough for peeling back a few layers of the onion to show him or to show all of us just a little glimpse inside the marvelous mind that is Rick Klun. Um, it was a fun one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, and don't worry. I know this is show 100 and promise big. Next week's our really, really, really big guest too. Uh, you don't want to miss that. We are not slowing down any time soon. Um, He's a big cast with a lot going on right now. Um, and I can't thank you all enough for making this show what it is. As always, Bob Cobb, take it away. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear? <laughs>